Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about 2020's Promising Young Woman, and my guest is the production designer, Michael Perry. Michael, welcome to Below the Line. Thank you very much. Now, warning for listeners, uh, we are going to spoil this film, undoubtedly. So if you haven't seen Promising Young Woman, go check it out and come back and join us. Michael, my impression of this film is that everything in it is very intentional. And so I want to ask you, starting with the script, talk to me about your process for bringing that to the screen as the production designer. Well, I got, I, I'll be honest with you, I got that script and it blew me away. I hadn't seen such precision writing in a very long time. I mean, it was just, the other thing I couldn't understand was this is a brilliant script. It's a woman director. She's got amazing sort of credentials to herself. And she, I assumed that I got it from, for some other reason than actually doing the movie, because this should be going to a female production designer. And it was a small film, so a young up and coming female production designer. But I couldn't miss the opportunity. I didn't want to pass on it. I wanted to talk to the person who wrote this just because, you know, yeah, it was such a lovely piece. And so I had, Emerald was shooting The Crown. She was in England and she called me. They were shooting late, so she was there anyway. She called and we started having a conversation as I do normally with the director about, you know, my thoughts, my initial takes, what I would like to see happen. And at the very end of the conversation, you know, oh, it was very lovely to meet you. And once again, I'm like, well, that was great. I got to talk to her. She said, can I ask you about Sweet Valley High? I hadn't talked to anybody about Sweet Valley High in 25 years. <laughs> Had no idea why she was bringing this up. And I was like, well, sure. What would you like to know? So it turns out it was a very popular television show to British people of the age of anybody, the age of 32 to 35. If I wore my Sweet Valley jacket in England, they would knock me over. <laughs> and that's how I got the job, by something I'd done 25 years before and because she liked the poppy colors. But I said, now, I said, it's a different time and a different era, but we can bring some of that in. And I did a lookbook of Murder, She Wrote, which is shockingly hip when you look at it. So we sort of settled on the pastel the blues and the pinks, and they would run through the whole film. But I wanted to approach each set sort of reinforcing what the movie is. Not necessarily characters, but what the film is saying. So I had a lot of masculine and female spaces, and I also had some neutral spaces. And within those feminine and male spaces, I also had sort of uh, degrees of foreshadowing of danger. So there's the most pictures of stuff is the, uh, the coffee shop. The, the coffee shop actually sort of sums all of it up. We were a very inexpensive movie. We needed a space for a coffee shop. 
I probably looked at 25 coffee shops and 25 spaces uh, that were just white and open. We locked on that because we could, uh, there was the pharmacy was down the street, so we could lock two, two locations. We only had a 23-day shooting schedule. Wow, that was tight. Yeah. So I said to the OK, I fit my overall look onto it. I didn't get that set till the day before that coffee shop. I dressed it and outlined it in the parking lot just so we would maximize our time. So that's the low budget nature, the, the day and doing stuff in the parking lot. That space from the character's point of view is a safe place. She has her friend. She doesn't have to interact really that much, but in a mean way with customers. Nobody's going to fire her because she's been there for so long. But when you see her mate, Bo, he's talking to her and past her shoulders are coffee cups, which are these. <laughs> like the red one you have in your hand now, right? And they're just across the space. So I used red throughout the movie to cue the audience that what you're thinking is a safe space may not be. When we're in the bar, the first bar, she's at the red leather banquette. And that's just, you know, here's trouble. And then when we get it to Matt, you know, all the guys that pick her up have their own character traits, but it, it's all sort of a woody, masculine kind of place where there's some large red item that's just danger, danger, danger. <laughs> You know, when you talk about the red, uh, jumping ahead to the end of the film, there at the wedding, I was surprised how much red was there. But now this makes sense as sort of a carry through of the movie. It's right. I wanted to reinforce um, that set, the art director, I told her to do her fantasy wedding in the woods. So she did. And then I came in and just tweaked. And then I said, now give me a river of red down the middle of the aisles. Just a river. So there's no, I, you know, so you know, this is really bad. I also want to ask you a, a deeper question about that coffee shop, because there's this moment where when Bo Burnham kisses her, it's actually not with the red coffee cups in the back, but we get this blue pattern on the wall that I hadn't noticed earlier. I don't know if that was intentional, knowing it was going to be for that shot, or yes. how did that sort of script direction sort of decide some of the space decisions? Well, the kiss was there and, you know, inherently in that kiss is Cassie now being maybe the Cassie she could have been. Here's this safe guy. She knows him, whatever. She's attracted to him. So, yeah, we take that moment, put her against that. So it comes off as safe. And that's what we had to do with Bo. We had to be very careful not to give away where... Bo ends up, you know, of his house and even the, the doctor's office, we're very much giving it a bit of bland. But as you come back, you know, going into the uh, doctor's office is a little further down. So there's little bits of red starting to be shown through there. But his house is as neutral as you could get. It's there's not too much blue. There's not too, you know, it's just, it could have been shot in black and white. Hmm. You know, as I thought, in addition to sort of the red element you're talking about, there's something about some of these uh, masculine spaces. I know that uh, 
the apartment in the in the early bit. You've got spirit catchers hanging on the wall, and you've got beads in a way that um, I know my takeaway was somewhat mocking the character. But tell me more about what you were thinking when you put that room together. It, but it was, but it is the character. I mean, you know, hanging around Hollywood, you'll meet these guys. They miss being the boat on being a hippie, or they miss the boat on being a punk, and they become very pretentious. And yet, they haven't written their book or their screenplay. And you know, there's. But, you know, it's like with, a, you know, a promise board or whatever it's called, putting stuff there, you know, and I'm sure there's pictures of the Pulitzer Prize. And um, so, yeah, so he sort of chose to be a bohemian, open to anything. And this is what he's accumulated in that role. Talk to me also about the decisions at Forest College, where Connie Britton is our dean, but sort of how this feminine masculine energy plays out on those sets. Yes, that's a very important set. It's important because through everything we've seen up till then, Cassie seems very messed up. But when she's in the office and she says, I've kidnapped your daughter and I've put her here, as an audience member, you're going, oh shit, she is a psycho. You, there's a part of you that goes, you lose there's almost a draining of sympathy for her at that moment. And you're seeing the other side of Cassie. Now she hasn't done this, but you don't know that there's just that moment. And it's like a mic drop and the audience is like, did she just, she, did she just set that little kid up for rape? What the fuck? And then, you know, Connie goes crazy ish, you know, with worry and concern and understanding now. But that space, that was the biggest confrontation of Cassie, the avenging angel, and authority. That place was all browns and deep greens, although all the books on the shelves are red. But that's a, that's a, that's a moment that's got to be hit, because now you're taking Carrie seriously about something you're just starting to understand. So that one had to be pretty right. You know, I'm just gonna keep running through these, Michael, till you tell sure. me what your favorites are, but I can say like, what about that pharmacy scene where she and Bo, it's early in, I think, their relationship, but the pharmacy itself is not like any pharmacy I've ever been in. There's a lot of neon light, um, fluorescence, it seems that almost a garish approach, even though this is the start of their relationship. It was. It's that moment where you click with a person that suddenly you can be a little unguarded, a little pushed away. The approach for it was, you know, what if we were doing a Paris Hilton video? What would that look like? So we had a lot of leeway. Now, as I said earlier, I, I brought up Murder, She Wrote. Well, that was a universal production and there's three legitimate pieces in the, my film that were used in Murder, She Wrote. That pink pharmacy sign is one of them. I found that. You can look up its history. <laughs> Murder, She Wrote. So that was one of those places where it was just fun. I mean, I don't think we shot that scene longer than three hours. Wow. Okay. And it, and it, and it took three hours because she couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> every time Bo started to sing, 
she would laugh. And it was just, it was, got to, it was a little struggle there. Michael, talk to me about her parents' house, which <sighs> is almost sparse. And there's elements like they have the plastic on the dining room table still. And this, talk to me about how these elements played out. I was looking for a place that seemed as stuck as Cassie was. So there's sort of a, a place from this giving up kind of thing. Uh, I saw a lot, an amazing amount of houses in a similar state. This is where I had to be editorial. What do I get from this house that I don't get from this house? What we got from this house was a lovely long shot from that fireplace all the way through the dining room, across the hall, to the kitchen table, to the kitchen, to the door outside. It's got to be like 90 feet. And her bedroom worked really well for shooting purposes. So there's a, there was a technical part to that uh, because I saw many that were similar. And then we just had to make it, you know, we had to bring in furniture with wings. Yeah, I don't know if anybody notices that, uh, but every painting on the wall is of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's really, it's her, her mother's house. You know, her mother stopped trying to help her a long time ago. So instead of pictures of Cassie and her friends, it's dogs. My set decorator, she brought in some beautiful stuff on that one. Yeah, we, and that's another thing we ran through the whole thing was this I, religious iconograph stuff, halos and wings and event, you know, we, we played with that a lot too. Now, the one thing I want to say about this, this was the funnest movie I've ever worked on because the boss, you know, Emerald, she has the most wicked sense of humor. I mean, if she'd been born 20 years early, she could have been in Bonnie Python. <laughs> so the amount of laughing we would do on this film was ridiculous. So a lot of what looks really tense and horrible, we'd cut and then Emerald would say something very British and we would all laugh. <laughs> um, so <laughs> even, even the final scene in the uh, log cabin, after the, after the deed was done, she had some, so, you know, five seconds after she's murdered, we're all in hysterics. I can see, and I can see that being for a very intense film shot on such a tight shooting schedule. Um, I can almost think that's critical just to keep the crew together on some level. Mm -hmm. But not usual. <laughs> <laughs> I can recall. They get, they get panicky. It's their first film. But Emerald is such a pro, we could have been doing her 20th movie. Wow. Although I, I hope when we do the 20th movie, she has um, more money and more time. <laughs> so that would certainly help. Uh, Michael, with so much intent uh, on all of these scenes, and and there's still sets that I haven't asked about, what were your favorites? Like, what one strike you that you really just nailed it? I think I nailed the coffee shop, but my favorite, because it's the darkest, is the uh, log cabin at the end when she's in that bedroom. Cause I just looked at it and was, um, Emerald had written yee-haw, the uh, embroidery in the script, but everything else. So I took it all from the British sensibility of yee-haw, right? 
the first thing I did was layers of uh, uh, tartans, plaids. So the curtains are plaid, the bedspreads plaid, the carpets plaid. And they're all within the sort of the blue tones with a little bit of green in it. Got this great bass bread, did cowboy hats on the wall. But at the bottom of the bed, there's cowboy boots and one pair of red cowboy boots. And it was, it was, listen, you know, you know, I don't in my career get often get the case to go down that road. I've done some, some pretty great, fun, fantastical sets. I'm lucky that way. Cause I, I you know, for some, whatever reasons it's, it's worked out. I don't have to do the same thing every time. <laughs> But it's not often that I can almost um, operate like I look at that as sometimes I look at my work as different kinds of art pieces and not to be pretentious, just like it's kind of what I bring to this thing. This was my op art movie. You know, it's over the top. It's poppy colors. You could take any one of those, put them in a bad filter and get a comic book panel out of it. So it was a very, very happy experience. And then I went to Sundance. We were showing the show. It was like the next year. Yeah. And I've gone to Sundance a couple of times, but the overwhelming conversations, and it was because it was shown the first night, was on everybody's lips. Promise. I've never experienced that. Promising. Everybody was talking about it. I was like, Jesus, the second day. What about all these other guys' movies? I mean, but it never ended. I mean, it was five solid days of that. Well, you know, I thought it was an interesting film the first time I saw it. And then you and I talked briefly before I rewatched the film. And just taking that masculine-feminine dichotomy and, and looking at the spaces that way on the rewatch, again, the things we're talking about now, just scratch the surface of what uh, I think you really opened with this. Listeners, go watch the film again. Think about all these spaces and how they're reinforcing the story and the characters uh, throughout. It's great. Listen, uh, Michael, we could keep talking about this all day, but Absolutely. we're going to call it a wrap there. Say, great having you on the show. It was, you know what? Very enjoyable. Uh, who doesn't like to talk about themselves <laughs> Well, uh, Listeners, we do want to know what you think of these shorter episodes. You'll find my contact info at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. And you'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media, so check it out. Michael, where else can people see your work? Well, right now, I have two very diametrically opposed pieces of work. On Amazon, I have a show called I Want You Back. It's a rom-com. Charlie Day is the main star, and it's very, very fun. On the flip side of that, on Netflix, I have the new Texas Chainsaw movie. And you can't get a bigger range than that. Beautiful rom-com, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas town built in Bulgaria from scratch. Well, Michael, I haven't had a chance to see either of those yet, but when I do, I'm going to be looking for your work on that. Thanks again. Great to see you. Hey, man. Anytime. My shout-outs are for the regular bunch. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line. All right, Michael, I can't get away without asking you about one other set, and that's the Mr. Green's house. Alfred Molina plays this lawyer who discredited a lot of these women before, but now... 
he actually um, is feeling guilty about that. So what are you thinking about when you design his set? It was funny. That was probably in the script. All it said was really dead flowers. So you you know you, that the character is not just full of guilt, but he's waiting for revenge to happen to him. I have a very big fondness for mid-century. So we found this place that it's it's actually an old hospital, but this was uh, some of the offices and it had those a lot of straight lines in it and things like that. So I talked to Emerald and it's like, I want to do this guy as black and white, his furniture, his stuff, because he's the only one she forgives because he's asked for forgiveness. And that's the thing with her. If you ask for forgiveness, then you're going to get it or you, you, you know, just admit it. That, so with that, I brought in the Barcelona type chairs. Uh, I bought much more modern stuff. And then, you know, I've been, I've been at home and been miserable and by myself, you know, there's pizza boxes, there's <laughs> coffee cups that aren't washed. There's, you know, to get that sense of he's hit not just bottom, but he's, he's felt like he's been, I want to say justice, but, but he, he realizes that everything he's done is wrong. He doesn't know how to, what to do with that information, except he wrote Cassie that letter. So it was a place was, you know, again, with the audience, is this a place where Cassie is going to take advantage of him? Is she going to do something terrible? But that's when you've, you know, you discover there's the other part of the revenge angle. It's the forgiveness. And I wanted that to be very sort of flat at a moment where the color was in their two faces. I think this is the most subtle of all the sets. But um, for me, it lends a sophistication to the design that uh, would not have been there if that wasn't there. Good stuff, Michael. Good stuff. <laughs> Comes from overthinking. 